0: Hey everyone, Lainey here again to check in, and I hope everyone is doing well and enjoying their summer. I am still working on being a new mom and figuring out what that means and how to do it, and kudos to everybody who's a mom now, and really must say thank you to my own mother (laughs) for doing the best that she could with me. But this episode is hosted by one of my really, really great and talented friends. She's a fellow voice actor, but also a podcast host who you may know. Her name is Tani Plattis, and she hosts the Death is Hilarious podcast. And you can find the Death is Hilarious podcast on any podcast platform that you listen to. You can also follow her on Instagram and Twitter at That Death Pod and on TikTok at Tawny Plattis. I promise that you will find her content hilarious. She does an incredible job of working through the grief that she feels from losing her husband, the love of her life and soulmate, by using humor and helping others see that. Sometimes, maybe, death is hilarious, but not in the way that you think. Okay, here's Tawny. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised.
1: Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Tawny, of the Death is Hilarious Podcast. I'm filling in for Lainey, who is on maternity leave. Transgender violence is a growing epidemic, particularly against women of color. Murders of transgender women reached an all-time level in 2020, with 37 transgender deaths by November 20th, Trans Remembrance Day. One teen brought this violence to mainstream media in 2002. Okay, on to the show. On October 3, 2002, Gwen Arajo left her home in Newark, California, headed to a house party. She was wearing a denim mini-skirt and top, along with flip-flops, but carried a pair of pants to put on in case she got drunk. The pretty 17-year-old already knew better than most the dangers that came from being drunk around rowdy teens, and went prepared to parties. Gwen wasn't an ordinary teenage girl. She was actually transgender, and still had male genitals. Gwen knew having a pair of pants to change into once she got drunk would help conceal her birth sex. Unfortunately, this time it didn't work. Nicole Brown said the gathering was peaceful and lazy, with clouds of smoke hanging around the room as the group drank and smoked cigarettes. In attendance, aside from Gwen were Nicole, her boyfriend Paul Merrill, his brother Jose Merrill, Michael Magdson, and Jaron Chase' neighbors. They were all gathered at the Merrill residence. This group knew Gwen as Lita, the other name she chose to go by at times, but we're going to stick to Gwen. Nicole told reporters that a few weeks before, she and Gwen had gotten into a fight at another party. Nicole had started urging Gwen to do a strip tease in front of the guys, and Gwen became annoyed. The two started fighting as girls do, pulling hair until it escalated to exchanging blows. Nicole said she had never lost a fight with another girl, but Gwen landed a blow that made them question if she was female. Although Nicole and Gwen made up after the fight, on October 3rd, suspicion continued concerning Gwen and her sexual identity. The night began friendly enough, with a couple of runs to 7-Eleven for more beer and cigarettes. On one beer run, Gwen told Nicole she had crushes on Michael and Jaron both. Michael and Jaron were at a club with Jose Merrill and a man Nicole knew only as Jason. All four men showed up at the house after midnight. Nicole said she and Paul were going to bed around 3.30 AM when she heard loud voices and walked in on the man confronting Gwen in the kitchen. One of the men asked Gwen, are you a man, are you a man? Nicole said she called out, why don't one of you guys find out? Michael and Gwen went to the bathroom And while they were gone, the others told Nicole some of them had sex with Gwen. After a half hour, Michael and Gwen were still in the bathroom, so Nicole went in. Gwen, who appeared to be very drunk, was sitting on the sink and would not answer Nicole's questions. Nicole decided to see for herself and opened Gwen's legs. Nicole screamed, It's a man! Oh my God! According to Nicole, Jose started crying and stayed close to the bathroom. Michael, Jaren, and Jason went outside to smoke. Nicole began pleading with Jose to let Gwen go, and let everything end peacefully. She told Gwen, you better run as fast as you can. Gwen left the bathroom, but returned a few minutes later, followed by Michael, Jason, and Jaren. Jaren had prevented her from leaving the house. Michael wrestled Gwen to the ground at which point Nicole and Paul left the house. Nicole said she knew the men were too angry for her to be able to stop anything. She said, I know Paul and Jose. I know they wouldn't do anything. But I didn't know those other guys that well. I was scared. Paul was on probation. I did not want to get into any trouble. Jason later told police that Gwen was beaten. Then Jose and Michael took Gwen to the garage, where they strangled her with a rope. After, they wrapped Gwen's body and put it in the back of Michael's car and drove to the Sierra Nevada, 150 miles away, to bury Gwen. Nicole said the next day she asked Paul what happened to Gwen, and he said Jose had told him, let's just say she had a long walk home. Paul Merrill also had details to add about that night. Paul said when his friends showed up at midnight, he tried to get Gwen to go home, but she wanted to stay and drink. He said a few hours later, he had walked her outside before going to bed. He said he wasn't in the room when the fighting started. He woke up to a commotion, then Nicole saying, It's a man. Let's go. Paul said he only saw Gwen lying on the floor with her miniskirt pulled up, but didn't know anything else. Gwen's mother, Sylvia Guerrero, was not too worried when Gwen didn't show up that night or the next day. She said she would occasionally stay gone, but when she had not returned by October 5th, she reported her missing with the police. Nothing else was heard, and there were no leads on Gwen's disappearance, until two weeks later, when one of Jaren's neighbor's friends agreed to wear a wire. During the conversation with his friend, Jaren said he was afraid, and said he wasn't narking on anybody. When the friend said not to worry, Jaren said, I have to worry. The friend tried to console Jaren, but Jaren said that the police knew everything. Jaren later led police to the shallow grave near the Silver Forks campground, where they had dumped Gwen two weeks before. He told police that Jose and Michael might have had sex with Gwen that night before she was killed. He said Jose was the first one to punch Gwen, and then someone asked for a knife. So Jaren handed them his knife. Before Gwen was found, her aunt, Imelda Guerrero, heard rumors swirling around the community. Gwen's funeral was held on Friday, October 25th, 2002. More than 500 people showed up to mourn the teen, many who did not know her. Gwen, at her mother's request, was buried in a dark dress with her hair fixed and makeup on. Many of the mourners were transgender themselves and came from other cities, such as Christopher Robin and Jennifer Names, who said this could have happened to them. One man, who draped himself in an American flag, came because his transgendered sister from New York had asked him to. Fred Phelps, leader of the bigoted Westboro Baptist Church, threatened to show up. But in the end, the event remained peaceful. Students from New York High School's drama class showed up in angel costumes. They had been performing The Laramie Project, a controversial play about Matthew Shepard, the Wyoming student who was murdered for being gay butterflies offered a theme for the funeral, as they were Gwen's favorite symbol. Her Auntie Melda eulogized Gwen, saying, Take your flight, beautiful butterfly. Take your flight. Sylvia later told reporters she has always had a fascination with angels, and Gwen's funeral helped her realize why. Angels are not gendered. Jaron, Michael, and Jose were all arrested after Gwen's body was found. They were charged with murder, plus a hate crime specification, which can add up to four years to each charge. On October 24, 2002, these three men all appeared in court to enter pleas. Only Jaron entered a plea of adamantly innocent. His attorney, Robert Beals, said the plea is not guilty to the charge of murder and adamantly denying the hate clause enhancement. The other two men did not present pleas. Although all three were held without bond, Robert tried to distance his client from the other two suspects by presenting a plea and also by speaking with reporters outside the courtroom. Robert also said of Jaron, there's no bias in him, nothing to indicate neighbors would actively participate in any type of homophobic activity. Jason was not arrested until over a month later and was not charged with a hate crime. Jason Cazares did admit to being at the party on October 3rd, but said little else to investigators. A search warrant executed at his parents' home resulted in the retrieval of two shovels, a pickaxe, a spade, and two hose, although Jason's mother said she was not aware of him using these implements recently. In January 2003, at a preliminary hearing for the four men accused of Gwen's murder, a witness testified she had received a phone call from Jason around 3 in the morning of October 4, 2002. She could hear a disturbance in the background, basically yelling at someone to tell him the truth about something. This witness had recently had a sexual relationship with Jason, but knew all four defendants, and considered them all close friends. She thought one of the voices she heard in the background was that of Jose Merrill. She had also told her mother previously she heard someone say, I am a girl, but in her testimony, said she wasn't sure. She admitted she was a reluctant witness because of her friendship with the men. The witness said Jason told her someone was there and they were just trying to get an answer out of this person. She said when Jason hung up, he said, Something's about to go down.
0: This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check out betterhelp.com slash TCFC. Now, as you know, I am a new mom, so my life is kind of crazy right now. And sure, everybody's life is full of stressors, and it doesn't matter who you are or what you have, your life is probably stressful. But I'm learning to navigate how to deal with any type of postpartum blues that I may be having. and. BetterHelp has honestly really helped me. Now, you may not be feeling down and out and depressed, or like you're at a total loss, but if your stress is high, your temper is shorter than usual, or even if you're starting to feel strain in any of your relationships, you could probably use the chance to unload. So unload the stress and get it out. Talk to someone who's completely unbiased about your life. Someone who isn't going to judge you or take sides on anything. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Unload the stressors and get some unbiased feedback. You'd be pretty surprised at what you might gain from it. See if it's for you. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and True Crime Fan Club podcast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com/tcfc That's B E T T E R H E L P.com/tcfc In March
1: 2003 A judge ruled that Michael, Jason, and Jose would all be bound over for trial. Jaron had pleaded guilty to voluntary manslaughter after agreeing to testify against his friends. The trial for the other three did not begin until March 15, 2004, with Jaron neighbors being the star witness for the prosecution. He provided many more details into Gwen's death, such as Gwen was hit on the head with a can of beans and with a frying pan. She was tied up and Jaren saw someone put a rope around her neck. After she was attacked and was sitting on the couch, they ordered her onto the floor, because she was getting blood on the couch. They then carried her into the garage, because she was getting blood on the carpet. Jaren put on an old shirt so as not to get his nice shirt dirty when they were digging the grave. Defense attorneys accused Jaren of making his account up, and said Jaren really changed shirts because his was already covered in blood. Jaren fired back. That shirt is hanging in my closet, clean as a whistle. The attorney then accused Jaren of offering up Jason Cazares so prosecutors would have fresh blood. And all the things he had accused Jason of doing, he had actually done. Jaren said no, and admitted to lying in the past, but he was obligated to tell the truth. So he was. Jaren said Jose and Michael had recently had sexual encounters with Gwen and began to suspect she was actually biologically male after they talked about it. Jaren said the blow from the can and skillet came from Jose, and that Michael had choked, punched, and kicked Gwen. Jason had kicked her after she was down. Jaren and Jason had left the house after the initial attack, going to Jason's house to get shovels. When they returned, Gwen was still alive. Allegedly, the two of them encouraged Michael to hit her in the face with his fist. And he did, twice, causing her to fall on the floor, where he kneed her in the face twice with considerable force. Once Gwen was carried to the garage, Jose stayed behind to clean the blood from the floor. Then, they put her into the truck and drove until they found an area off a dirt road where they stopped and began digging a shallow grave. When they finished digging, Michael took Gwen's body and put it in the grave, then all four men filled the grave in with dirt and rocks. On the way back home, the four men stopped at McDonald's for breakfast because they were hungry. Unfortunately, despite the evidence in Jaron's testimony, a jury deadlocked, and the trial ended in a mistrial. Jurors reported they were deadlocked 7-5 to 5 in favor of convicting Michael Magison, and 10-2 to 2 in favor of acquitting Jose Merrill and Jason Cazares. Less than two weeks after her mistrial, Alameda County Superior Court Commissioner Thomas Sur granted Sylvia's request that Gwen's name be changed legally. She had filed the paperwork in late May 2004, but the commissioner said it was a novel situation, and he needed more time to make a decision. However, in a mailed notice the family received, they learned the posthumous name change had been granted on June 23, 2004. Sylvia announced in a written statement, This is something that all of us have been waiting too long for. It is one of my regrets that I didn't call my daughter Gwen more while she was alive. Having this order granted helps me to put that regret to rest. For the first trial, the defense practiced some character assassination, and also essentially used the trans panic defense. In the facts of the case, Gwen was described as being pretty, flirtatious, and often acted in a sexually suggestive manner. Gwen's case led to the introduction of legislation that would prohibit defendants from contending that they were provoked to kill by discovering the victim's disability, gender, nationality, race, ethnicity, religion, or sexual orientation. In the second trial, more activists in the trans community were committed to a trial where Gwen was not blamed for her own death. Unlike the first trial, Gwen was referred to as she, rather than by her biological gender. One of the defense attorneys in the second trial objected to several photographs of the murder scene, saying, The photos are too gruesome, will be prejudicial, and have no probative value. The judge ruled that most of the photographs would be allowed. The second trial, which lasted throughout the summer of 2005, had a much more satisfactory outcome for the transgender community. Michael and Jose were both found guilty of murder and sentenced 15 years to life. They were cleared of the hate crime charges. Unfortunately, after seven days of deliberation, the jury remained deadlocked about Jason. The jurors were divided nine to three for convicting Jason. On December 16, 2005, Jason Cazares pleaded no contest to a charge of voluntary manslaughter. His sentencing did not occur until January when the other two men were sentenced, but his attorney asked that Jason's sentence not begin until March when his third child was due. He was released on $1 million in bail. In January, Jason was sentenced to six years in prison. Gwen's mother addressed the court during the sentencing and said to the judge, I had hoped that I would feel some satisfaction that justice had been done when I finally got in front of you. Instead, I just feel sick. Nothing anyone does is going to bring Gwen back to me. I guess I just hoped that knowing these men, who so callously ended her life were going to pay for their actions, would ease the pain. But it doesn't. I'm not sure anything ever will. She added that Gwen was robbed of her ability to live a full life and her family was robbed of sharing that with her. Because of these men, none of us will get to do these things. Instead, we've each been given a lifetime sentence of loss and sadness. While any of them could have stopped this from happening, none of them did. I know that two of them, Jose and Jaron, regret those decisions very much. I applaud their bravery for coming forward in different ways and at different times. That is what real men do, They take responsibility for their actions, no matter how imperfect. I know that putting these men in jail for a long time won't change any of these things. But if they miss birthdays, anniversaries, holidays, if they miss their children growing up, maybe they'll better understand what they have taken from us. And even if they are celebrating these events in prison or watching the world from their cell, at least they are able to celebrate and watch. Gwen isn't. Gwen's brothers also spoke, saying, When they killed Gwen, they killed us too. They are murderers, cowards, and losers. Gwen's aunt Imelda Guerrero also spoke, saying, I hate all of them. I hate them all because they took her. I hate all of them because they hurt my family. Jose Merrill wept while the family members spoke, occasionally looking at the family members. Michael Magdison was stony-faced, staring ahead of him. Jason Cazares shook his head slightly in apparent disgust when Sylvia read a statement prepared by Gwen's uncle, David Guerrero. Jason Cazares, I want to share with you that I hate you the most. All in all, you got a slap-on-the-hand sentence. David called Jason the ringleader. Michael Magdison also spoke to the courtroom, saying, This case was based entirely on lies. I received nothing close to a fair trial. He then said he accepted his responsibility in Eddie's death, calling Gwen by her birth name. Jose Merrill spoke to the family directly, apologizing. I know no matter how many times I say I'm sorry, it won't change anything. I wish I could go back and erase that day, but I can't. None of us would be here if I hadn't become so deeply saddened that night. He also said he did not kill Gwen. In October 2016, Jose and Michael went before the parole board. On October 14, 2016, Jose was granted parole. Michael Magdison declared to the parole board he was not ready for release. Sylvia Guerrero had fought Michael's parole but had actually asked for Jose's parole. Jose was remorseful and had a good record in prison. Michael, however, had a poor prison record. Sylvia said she felt like Jason and Michael were the ringleaders and did not feel as if Jose should have been charged with a lesser charge. She also said some of the other partygoers should have been charged, since they could have helped Gwen, but did not. Gwen was a beautiful teenager and a young lady. Her mother had always known something set Gwen apart from others. Even though Gwen played Little League and went fishing as a child with the boys, there was always something a little different about her. Unfortunately, other people sensed this too, and Gwen was tormented as early as first grade. Other students teased her, called her names, and even threw rocks at her. Her mother found out and began driving her to and from school. As a teenager... Gwen tried to get a job, but couldn't because her legal name and identity did not match. The July before her death, Gwen was stabbed in an alley. Her mother picked her up, and a police report was filed. The Newark police said they knew Gwen had a problem with alcohol. Sylvia never read the police reports and wants everyone to know she accepted Gwen. She tried to call her Gwen in public, but sometimes a lifetime habit is hard to stop. Gwen's mother sometimes lapsed into male pronouns, but said she preferred the use of feminine pronouns out of respect for Gwen. On their last night together, Sylvia had picked up hair dye because Gwen wanted them to do each other's hair. She was a little put out when she arrived home with the dye, and Gwen said she was going to a party. Gwen modeled for her mother, showing off the blue jean mini skirt she had borrowed from her friend. Sylvia wasn't comfortable with the skirt, something mothers of teenage girls everywhere can empathize with. But Sylvia had a deeper concern, that the skirt would not conceal Gwen's biological identity. So to appease her mother, Gwen took along a pair of pants. When she was found, Gwen still had the miniskirt on that she had been so proud to show her mother. Sylvia also said Gwen felt feminine and never, never felt masculine. I never understood what she felt. She came out three years ago and was still confused. She said she and Gwen had long talks about sexual identity, which were rarely easy conversations. She admired Gwen for having the guts to dress as a girl, especially in this town. Unfortunately, Gwen's murder was the downfall of her mother's life. Sylvia had once been a legal assistant at a San Jose law firm where she was employed when Gwen was murdered. Sadly, she developed PTSD and memory problems after Gwen's murder, and she became a liability. She was not able to return to the law firm and has since become homeless. A movie about the murder was made by Lifetime, A Girl Like Me, The Gwen Arajo Story. Sylvia still receives emails after the movie airs. She says Gwen did not die in vain. Because of Gwen, people tell her, they are free to be who they are. At an early hearing for the first three suspects, Sylvia read a statement. I loved my child beyond words. I gave my child life, and I simply cannot understand how anyone else thought they had the right to take the life which I gave. I want justice, because this should never have happened, and I never want it to happen to any other child or any other family. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, My one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcast or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media channels, Twitter at TCFCpod, Facebook.com slash TCFCpodcast. Instagram at true crime Fan Fanclub Pod, and of course, our website is truecrimefanclub.com. If you have an episode suggestion, send us an email at TCFCpod at gmail.com. This episode was written and researched by Susie St. John. Content editing by Brittany Martinez.